In the summer of 1978, Braha Getz was a brilliant Harvard grad and had just completed her first year of medical school. She was also unwell with an eating disorder and searching, always searching. When she traveled to Israel that summer to work at Hadassah Hospital for six weeks, her mother warned her, do what you want in Israel, just don't look up that crazy religious mishigana. The neighborhood guy, who had gone to Jerusalem, drank the Kool-Aid and, well, never came home. Which, of course, is exactly what Bracha Getz did. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and today a true Tel Avivian, living in the heart of the magnificent city of Tel Aviv. Stay with us for this amazing discussion of spirituality, the Holocaust, extremism, ethics, and, of course, what made Bracha go all the way. Seven years later, in the summer of 1985, I spent a lot of time visiting West Bank settlements. There weren't many, and the few that had been established tended to be isolated on remote hilltops. Why was I doing this? I was driven by curiosity, plain and simple. I wanted to understand what motivated these people to embark on such a life, and what was it actually like there? One of those pioneers was a young American-Israeli woman named Bracha Getz. She lived in a new, small West Bank settlement, Ma'ale Amos, which had been established in 1981, just 14 years after the 1967 war. It was still a period of strong residual euphoria in Israel. Against all odds, the country had beaten back Arab armies twice on multiple fronts. Especially in 1973, there was dire concern that Israel may not survive the conflict. And then the tide turned, miraculously. In those days, all Israeli political parties supported settlements. As always, there were so many competing urgencies and settlement activity simply was not perceived to be problematic, other than the protests of what were then considered to be fringe voices. These days, of course, the issue is front and center, and it is impossible to be neutral or ambivalent about settlements. The years following the Yom Kippur War were also accented by a wave of spiritual searching by many Jews. How, so many asked, did we prevail in that war? Against all odds, the human toll in dead and injured was staggering, as was the shock and trauma to the nation. In the wake of the 1973 war, many Israelis and Jews turned to traditional Judaism for answers. Perhaps, they thought, everything really was some sort of divine intervention or miracle. These years, we now know, marked a period in which many Baalei Tshuva, formerly secular or traditional Jews, sought and found answers in more orthodox streams of religion. Bracha Getz, born and raised in Queens, New York, daughter of committed socialists, Harvard alum, med school student, was a part of that wave, and her journey is fascinating. One morning in the summer of 1985, I boarded an empty bus without air conditioning, and it was going out to Male Amos. I was going to meet Bracha. 
I had been referred to her by an acquaintance and reached out by telephone. She was very open to having me come to visit her in her home in the settlement. At that time, Bracha was a young mother of four and had been living on the isolated hilltop for four years. Almost 40 years later, why I remembered her name is a bit of a mystery, but I did. And last spring, I reached out to her to see what had become of the very bubbly Balchuva woman I had met on an arid hilltop decades earlier. In 2023, I was just following my curiosity, as I had done in 1985. In our conversation in 2023, we spoke about her years of spiritual searching, Harvard, med school, faith after the Holocaust, how an avowed feminist reconciles her views with what many see as the subservient role of women in ultra-Orthodox society, the ethics of settling in Judea and Samaria, how she regarded the settlement enterprise back then, and whether her views have changed at all in the ensuing decades. Bracha and I are opposites in so many ways, but we discuss these very sensitive issues so openly and without the rancor that saturates so much Jewish discourse these days. It is a fascinating exchange and reflective in a way that is appropriate to this time of year, the days of awe. I hope you find her as interesting and inspiring as I did and do. Rafa Getz, so nice to see you again after almost 40 years, and thank you for making the time today to speak with the state of Tel Aviv. It's great to be here. So let's go back. Where were you raised, Bracha? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, Rigo Park. I went to Forest Hills High School, where Simon and Garfunkel went before me. Well, Simon and Garfunkel surely say where Bracha Getz went, right? Yeah, right, right. I was in this little rent-controlled apartment. So living in this little apartment was not a big deal to me. We never owned a house. My father was a big socialist, so not owning things was the way to go. We didn't have a car. We didn't have a house. (laughs) And then you end up going to Harvard for your undergrad. What did you study in undergrad? Psychology and pre-med. So you thought you wanted to be a doctor? A psychiatrist, yeah. Oh, interesting. As I recall, you were not religious when you went to Harvard. Right. So just take us through that journey. You're at Harvard, you're studying pre-med, and then you're between your first and second year of med school. After I graduated from Harvard, I went to the Medical College of Virginia. That's where I studied medicine. You know, you're clearly very motivated and super bright, and you're in medical school. And to not finish is very dramatic. I don't have to tell you that. So take us back to what you think are the really key points in your spiritual and life journey leading to this very profound shift in life direction. Yes. I was a spiritual searcher from the beginning of age 12. So I would say I started a diary after I read the diary of Anne Frank at age 12. And I actually found my diary years later, which became a journal as I got older this became my memoir, which is called Nourish the Soul. Basically, it's like a documentary. It shows the development, searching, and the gradual development of eating disordered behavior, and then the healing process. So basically, what I discovered through putting the book together, what I tried to understand was why when I finally became an observant Jew, Why did I no longer have the eating disorders? 
what did one thing have to do with the other? And my hypothesis that I speak about is that my soul was starving. So therefore, that's basically why I had such a strong motivation to change my life. It wasn't all that hard for me to drop out of med school, change my entire life, because my soul was so starving that it was an easy decision for me to do. That's what's so amazing. I could not live like that. I really didn't see the purpose of going on in my life because life seemed purposeless. I was only dating non-Jews for years, and my mother encouraged me to go to Israel for the summer. She helped me get a volunteer position at Hadassah Hospital the year between my first and second year of medical school. She said to me, basically, do whatever you want in Israel, but just don't contact that religious fanatic, this guy that I knew from childhood who became religious. Of course, I sent him an aerogram as soon as I could, and I told him I'm coming to Israel. I'm studying to be a psychiatrist but I don't know the purpose of life. How am I going to help my patients? I need to understand the purpose of life. He said, don't worry. I will take you to some schools. You will learn about the purpose of life. So that's basically what happened. He met me in the cafeteria at Hadassah. He took me to Neve and Orsamer. And believe me, I had loved aspects of Buddhism and Christian science. I got very involved in both of them. They gave me some spiritual truths that I was searching for, but they did not fit perfectly inside me like that missing puzzle piece. So I was still searching. And when I got into Orsamaka Neve, I would sit in the classes and there were some words in Hebrew. I did not understand what they were talking about. It didn't matter. I felt like I finally found what I was looking for. I felt that way immediately. Wow. Immediately. It was the students. It was the teacher's they were not cynical, like I had become a cynical kind of person, which was not my nature. I got back hope and trust in life again, really quickly. That part came in right away. Mm. And I loved the depth of spirituality that I began to learn about. Really, I call it my lost heritage because I didn't get this spirituality was part of Judaism. Interesting. There's so much to unpack in there. You mentioned that you had dealt with eating disorders personally. Is there anything, I don't want to be sensational about it or overly probing, but is there anything meaningful that you derive from your experience at whenever it started and for however long it went on that you think would be helpful for people to hear? Great question. I feel so much about eating disorders has to do with control. I felt out of control. I felt life was out of control. I felt like I was in a world I could not trust, couldn't trust myself. My morals were lost. I felt like everything was gray. There was nothing that mattered. When did this kind of depth of kind of emptiness, when did the grayness, when did you first become aware of it and start to react to it in terms of eating disorder? I realized when this happened from reading my diaries. From age 12, that's why it's like a documentary. You can actually see at age 12, there was a consciousness expansion. As I began adolescence, my body changed, the hormones changed, and my brain was changing. And suddenly I was asking, we get up every day to 
go to work to make money to buy food to go to work to make money. what's it all for what is the purpose of all this these are the questions i keep asking more and more about this and frank was asking deep questions too and she was around the same age that's when it was beginning and it got more and more desperate as the years went on this search for meaning so you're studying at Harvard, you're pre-med, and you're dealing with eating disorders, but obviously still managing to focus and do very well at school. And I became an expert in it. So I wrote articles about it, and there was a book published, Women Look at Biology, Looking at Women, where I was part of the editorial team and part of getting the book out, my chapter about anorexia. It's still used in women's studies courses. Wow around the world because I was fascinated by this and I'd arrange seminars discussing it as I was getting sicker and sicker myself. So somehow in the midst of all of this kind of personal chaos, if I can put it that way, you graduated in 1977 from Harvard, obviously applied to medical school and I'm assuming didn't take a break. And so we're now in your summer after first year med school. How was first year med school? Did you enjoy it? Did you hate it? How was it for you? Let's say I enjoyed Harvard much more. Medical school was a little bit boring for me the first year because it was very factual. I'm more of an ideas person. I had to memorize a lot of stuff. It wasn't my favorite, but I did okay. Not as well as I did at Harvard. But also, I think my intellectual abilities were not as strong because by then I was at my sickest and my behavior was getting really bizarre. Again, it's an addiction. And doing everything in secret, nobody knew how I was suffering. And the prison that you get into gets narrower and narrower as you get sicker and sicker in an addiction. I was really suffering, but on the outside, I looked like a success. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise if you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. So you go off to Israel, I guess this is the summer of 78? Yes, exactly. So you go to Israel, you're volunteering at Hadassah, you connect with your friend, the crazy guy who went off on all that Michigan religious <laughs> stuff. And I was listening to you speak about the immediate comfort that you felt at a place like Neve, because I had a very different experience a few years later. In those days, I was very spiritually curious and I was very drawn to probably many of the same issues and ideas that you were. Okay, so I went to Neve and I really was searching and I really wanted depth. And what I found and what I was told directly was studying Gemara and really getting into detail and the analysis, that was for men. And my place, I hate to put it this way, was barefoot and in the kitchen. <laughs> that I needed to understand how to run a proper Jewish home, which meant <laughs> cooking, which I was also very interested in. But it was like, 
wait, I have to take only home ec. I can't take shop class. No, I'm a North American. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. No, I found that very limiting and very off-putting. And my experience and reaction was total opposite to yours. I found a lot of the young women who were there, I found them, forget, not cynical. They were just like worshipful and almost glassy-eyed, like I've been parched in the desert. Whatever you're serving, I will drink. Yes. I had a very different experience and reaction and never really got past that. So that to me was fascinating, listening to you, someone who's obviously very intelligent, going in and talk about yin and yang, you and me. I know. I wrote about those same issues. I have one of my poems, songs, it's called The Women's Section, how I felt about it, you know? In the back, in the back, in the back I'll be, but I wish I could have picked this independently. I have this whole song about it, like how I feel about being in a separate section and all that. And I was a very strong feminist. I started the first women's forum in my high school discussing women's issues. It was like, this was very important to me, that women should have the opportunity to be whatever they want to be. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you came to terms with or reconciled this feminist highly intellectual bracha with what you chose to become. You wrote a poem about the separation. Not only am I separated from the men, but I'm behind a screen and I'm at the back of the bus. How would you explain to someone listening to you today the manner in which you came to accept that? Yeah. Let's see. I don't have it by heart. It's not so bad to be without the men. It's not that same old scene again. There are less distractions, no chemistry. There's no man to flirt with or inhibit me. And at the end of the entire thing, the woman realizes that the power from the back could just blow them away. We have an incredible power, women. And the fact is, The reason why we don't do these things, we don't need to do these things. It's an intense spirituality. We are the last thing created. We are the pinnacle of achievement, women. You want to be required to go to synagogue three times a day. This is not necessary for your soul. You have different things that your soul needs, and that's not one of them. We don't need that. We're on a different level than men. Spiritually. Yes. It's like taking a medication you don't need. We don't need to be doing that. Do you know that people who are listening to this conversation in North America, Western Europe, Australia, UK, are going to be like, what are you talking about? Okay. I'm going to get on the bracha train and (laughs) listeners, you're all going to do it with me. Going to accept, you know, suspend disbelief and say, okay, fine. Women live on a higher spiritual plane. We don't need to go through or engage in so many of the rituals of worship and other things that men do. So us being in the back is actually a tribute to that. You're okay. You don't even have to be here if you don't want to. If you look at the way in which ultra-Orthodox communities function, do you feel that they honor that? Not always. There's so many cultural issues that have gotten in the way. There's even today, Like in many Orthodox communities now, there's a huge focus on materialism. That's a completely cultural thing. It's gotten so far away 
from the essence of what this is all about, which is a spiritual essence. And getting back to the purity is what I love. For instance, there was a huge problem with sexual abuse. It was not being reported in the Orthodox communities. So as a Balshuva, I don't care about these things. I'm not interested in the status quo. I changed my whole life. If I see something that's wrong, I want to fix it. So that's what I did. When I became aware of the problem, first I tried one way to do it. I was not successful. Then I decided the best thing is education. I'm going to write books to go into everybody's home teaching about sexual abuse in a joyful way that people are going to really read it. Culturally appropriate pictures, everything. So it was a hugely groundbreaking book. First of all, everybody rejected it. Every orthodox publisher I sent it to rejected it. The newspapers wouldn't publish my articles. Only the Jewish press did, but no other orthodox newspaper would publish. And then I got Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz on board, and he had connections in the Aguda. He got my manuscript published with the biggest orthodox publisher, which is Art Scroll Masora. It took four years. But we did it, and it was totally groundbreaking. I wasn't the first woman to be working in this field. Actually, Debbie Fox was the first. She did work in California. That was groundbreaking. But it did a lot. These books are in over hundreds of thousands of Orthodox homes now. It's completely changed the landscape. For sure, there is more that can be done, but children now are taught in school and at home to report sexual abuse. They're taught about it. So there's things that are not being done right. And that is is not Again, that's part of the culture. It's a culture that happened. It's not the way Orthodox Judaism should be. It's a world of, we should be teaching about truth, being honest, and teaching what deception looks like, teaching all these things. So yes, we can go off course, and I've seen it. There's other things I work on too, about disabilities. I've written about that, work on that, and healthy eating. It's so off. The way that Orthodox families generally eat, it's really unhealthy. It's not in line with God's wonderful creations. When I see things going off course, I love to bring it back to the pure form that it was designed to be. There's a line that I remember, and it may be your first book, it may not. And it was something like when you talk to your three-year-old child and mention that you went to Harvard, it means nothing to them. Is that ringing a bell? That's definitely in my memoir. Yeah. And it's in some of the songs I write. And thank God my husband even had that reaction. That's how I knew he was the right one. There were many guys I went out with when I was dating with Shaduchim, and they were intimidated. My husband was like, when I told him I went to Harvard, he had no reaction. I said, did you hear what I just said? Because <laughs> he had no reaction. He could kill us. That's fascinating. Your husband, I mean, I that's a whole different equation. But your three-year-old, now that we have the opportunity to yeah. revisit this conversation 40 plus years later, yeah, of course, going to Harvard means nothing to a three-year-old. But at the time, you were treating it as a real kind of light bulb moment, an aha moment for you. And I have to be honest, I was sitting there thinking, of course your kid doesn't care. They don't even know what Harvard is. So looking back, again, it's a bit of a yin-yang moment, right? For you, that was so eye-opening. And for me, I'm like, help me understand why 
that was so important for you then? I think it was symbolic. What I was trying to say was they don't really understand who I am in fully. They, they just see me as the person that makes their food, puts them to bed at night. These are the things that matter to them. They can't possibly understand who I really am in depth. And the truth is, I don't know if my children ever really appreciated that, but it's funny because now my grandchildren, they really do appreciate it. Not the three-year-olds, of course, but they understand who I am in a much more full way because they see what I've accomplished, what I've done, and because I'm also doing it in the Orthodox world. So I've integrated the gifts that God gave me. I've been able to utilize in this new life that I've taken on. So let's again go back to the seminal moment in your life, or one of, I'm sure, many seminal moments, but for the purposes of this interview, you're in Israel, you meet the Meshigana religious guy, and you say, okay, I found my truth. I found my way. I found my path. And you got to call home. Yes. You've got to call mom and dad and say, I'm getting off the bus. Yep. Can you recapture that? Oh my gosh. My parents totally flipped out. And one cute episode is at my engagement party, somebody pretends, they put on a skit and somebody pretends to be my mother and someone is me. And the line that the pretend mother said is, we wanted you to marry someone Jewish, but this is ridiculous. Yeah. So basically that's it. My parents were flipped and they thought I joined a cult and they just wanted to get me home as soon as possible. You've not, that's very nice that you've explored Orthodox Judaism. Now come and explore Reform Judaism and get more into conservative Judaism. And I had gone to a reconstructionist camp, which I loved. And it definitely got me interested because they kept Shabbat there, which I loved. So I had some background, but no, I was like, oh no, this is it. And I know if I go back, I'm going to drop the truth because I'm just going to get, there's going to be too much pressure on me. I'm going to be back in my old environment. Even though I know I found what I'm looking for, I'm not going to be able to hold on to this. Not there in Virginia, no. So I'm not leaving and I'm staying right here. First, I took a year's leave of absence. I got that from my medical school. I was thinking of transferring to Tel Aviv University Medical School where they had a program for Americans, but I'm like, no, I want to immerse myself in Jewish studies. This is not what I'm going to be doing now. So I stayed put and my parents totally flipped. And let's see, I came in June. By September, I wanted to start dating. And they had a house mother and she said, how could you start dating? You just got here. And I'm like, no, I really want to get married. I need that support. I feel like I don't want to do this alone. I want to have this kind of relationship now. I'm ready for it. And I said, oh, actually, my parents kept kosher in the house. Somehow that convinced them. I don't know why. When I said that line, they were okay. And they're okay, you could start dating. So I dated like 10 guys in one month. Nobody wanted to go out with me a second time. One person. But most people, they were like, you are just off the boat. You don't know anything. I'm not going out with you again. My husband was not like that. And he saw potential. We met in a sukkah. And I like to say it turned into a chuppah. Because sukkah is about trust. 
trusting in the unknown and going forward. And I'm so glad I did, you know, 44 years later. Thank God. Did your parents fly over to try to drag you back home or? They came for the wedding to try to kidnap me and go to Australia or something. Like they were still hoping it wasn't going to happen when they came. My mother is wearing sunglasses at the wedding because she's crying. It's horrible. When I think later on, I could appreciate the pain that I put them through. But at the time, I was just full speed ahead with very little compassion to them. My letters were full of compassion. When I read the letters, I see I did have compassion for them. But still, I didn't appreciate what they were going through. And I'm assuming that those sunglasses have since come off and (laughs) that your family found a way to repair and reintegrate and be yes. a family again. As the grandchildren came, they began to see how what amazing people they were. Before my mother passed away, she asked if my father could come and live with us. And I was very honored by that. He had Alzheimer's. So I, it's, I say that he became orthodox at 84. He had no choice because he was with us and he was eating kosher, keeping Shabbos. Every day he'd wake up and he'd say, is it Shabbos today? Like he'd want Shabbos every day. It was so beautiful. In the end, he passed away on Shabbos. We were all around him, like singing. It was an incredibly spiritual experience. When you moved to Male Almos, what made you decide to go? On what basis do you leave your reasonably comfortable life in Jerusalem and go to live in this caravan on a hilltop in the West Bank? Well, one thing, we didn't have any money. What we paid for our own wedding. My parents weren't going to pay for it. We had nothing, very little. And they were offering us this free way to live here in these caravans. So that's great. We were such pioneers, me and my husband. We love that. My husband studied urban planning. Oh my gosh, starting a new community. He loved that. We just, the whole adventure of it. And plus, I didn't like living in a city. I love the openness, rural. This was something I always, even when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I was taking courses at the Graduate School of Public Health in rural health and developing countries. I loved all of it. Everything about it was made for us. And when you arrived there, you see your caravan, like it's real, okay? It's now, okay, you love all these ideas and urban planning and it's all very exciting, but here's reality. Did your heart ever sink or was it just pretty smooth sailing for you? It was looked like a moonscape. It was a deserted nothingness. And there were no Arab villages near us. Later, they came closer as once we were there and we had this water tank, they moved very close to us. But there was nothing as far as you could see. It was wow. just barren, barrenness. And I kept thinking, I wrote one story about it. What would my mother say if she knew where her daughter was living? I don't think they had those signs up then. Now there were signs, don't go past here. This is dangerous. This is Arab territory. Don't go here. So now it's like very scary when people travel out there. But at that time, there was nothing. When was the last time you visited there? When was the most recent? Right. We spent a Shabbos there this past winter. And what was it like for you? to be there. Did it feel similar? Did it bring back that kind of fire that you felt when you first went out of this frontier settlers? I told my husband I could live here again in a minute. And he said, not with me. You're not. (laughs) He's not the least bit interested in going back. This Moment in History 
is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. So, given there's so much going on now in Israel, around Israel, outside of Israel, but we're in definitely a fluid, is probably the least judgmental way to put it, fluid state right now in so many ways. But the settlement enterprise obviously is a much different thing in the whole mix. And there's much more awareness focused on it. We have, if you include East Jerusalem, we have 500,000 Jewish Israelis living in the West Bank. If you exclude the ring around Jerusalem, it's 350,000. That's a huge number of people living in the West Bank. How do you look at that sort of macro enterprise of settlements in the West Bank? Do you see it any differently than you might have in the early 80s today? I'm grateful for it. I think it's so good that we are resettling the land. That's how I feel. Yeah. Okay. And you know that I have to ask you, there's obviously tremendous conflict, right? So you're expressing this strong point of view and it's informed by spirituality and a connection to the land, a connection to the religion, but there's tremendous conflict that accompanies the settlement enterprise. You mentioned before we started speaking that you split your time now between Baltimore and Beitar which of course is just on the other side of the Green Line, so technically in Judea Samaria, the West Bank. Yes. You're a deep thinker. You're a spiritual thinker. So you have to struggle, think somehow, think about the conflict that surrounds you, the conflict that is embedded in where you live, where you choose to live. So share that with the listeners and share that with me because I'm fascinated to hear how you manage that conflict, how you integrate that conflict, how you justify it. I feel that the Palestinian people have been hijacked and mistreated and they are the ones suffering and there's no need for this. They're being kept in squalor on purpose and in order to create this conflict. And there's no other refugee status continuing for generations. It's a disgusting thing that's happening to all these people's lives, generation after generation. Of course, Jordan doesn't want to give the land to them. They don't want to take them back. They want this conflict to exist. In the Middle East, there's, I think this is right, 99.6% is Arab in the Middle East, and we're 0.4%. This is what they're fighting over, this 0.4%, which we want to be Jewish, and they don't want the Jewish people there. This is what we want. And there's so many other places where they could live, but they're prevented from living there on purpose. They want this terrible condition to continue for them and make it look like we are the cause of this problem. Based on what you've just said to me, I'm going to conclude or assume that you're saying it's our land 
and any claim you Palestinians make to Judea and Samaria, sorry, it's ours, we're here, and we're going to continue to settle and expand. And they could live there as well, but they want to wipe the Jewish people out from sea to sea. They are not okay with us being there with them. So that can't work. In a few weeks, Bracha, we're going to be marking a period of time in the Jewish calendar that arguably is the most significant. We begin with Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, when we celebrate the sweetness, the goodness, all of the wonderful things that life gives us. And we reflect on all of that good, but we're also meant to really dig deep and taking a spiritual accounting of who we are and what we are as individuals and also as a people. And then we head to Yom Kippur, which as we know is a day of, of atonement. It's a day of deep reflection. It is not a holiday. It's a very intense, deep, solemn day. And then we eat. What would your message be to Jews everywhere in that period, but particularly to Jews in Israel today who are really in a place of deep turmoil? What would you say to the Jews of Israel to focus on in the days of awe? I think it's the Baal Shem Tov, the song, The World is a Narrow Bridge. and the main thing is never to be afraid. Things look, oh goodness, what's happening? But what I came to understand in life, it's all for an ultimate good. There really is never a reason to be afraid. When things look dark and terrible, that's why this world was made with hills and valleys, to know that you're feeling low, you're going to come up again. We don't have to worry. Don't be afraid. This world was made with love, with infinite love and infinite wisdom. And we have one purpose here. Our purpose is to enjoy, experience the greatest pleasure possible. That's okay, Bracha, but let me say this. You and I come from very different places, not just that you're American originally and I'm Canadian. And no, they're not the same thing, listeners. But I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And you're the child of people who were born in America. Right. So when I listened to you just now say, we were put here to enjoy, don't come with fear, expunge fear. This world was created for us to enjoy. That does not speak to me as the daughter of a survivor. So help me a bit. That's exactly what I bring up as the Holocaust. I became observant because of the Holocaust, because I felt, why is it always the Jewish people? Why? Why are they picked on? Why? What is it about us? How weird are we? What is it? What's special about us? I don't understand. We can't possibly understand something like the Holocaust. It's horrific. We can't even begin, begin. But all of us, Bali Chuva, we feel, not all of us, so many of us feel that we were in the Holocaust. So many of us, and even Garim, that feel that they were in the Holocaust. So many of us, we feel, why would our souls be starving for this? Why? Because we've been there before. This is familiar to us in some way. We've been there. We believe we've been reincarnated from the Holocaust. We can't see the full picture. We have no idea why things like that have to happen. We don't know the whole picture. We know that there's an ultimate good to it all. So beyond us, it's like explaining to a blind person what green looks like. We can't understand this in so many levels, but that's what I've come to understand. All the mitzvot have one 
thing in common. They're all expressions of gratitude. That's what we are. Yehudim, Hoda'ah is the middle of Judaism. We're all about gratitude. That's why we were created. With the greatest respect, I would respond in this way, that whether you're an old soul repackaged in a new life that in some way was connected to or experienced the Holocaust, I would say, and I think I speak for every child in a survivor family and third generation now, our life experience is very different. And we lived it every day and every moment of every day that more people turned away from religion than turned to it after the Holocaust. Right. And many survivor families like mine are strong Zionists, but not religious. And so when I hear you say that, my honest reaction is, no, I can't accept that there is any good on the other side of the ledger from that horror. And I totally agree with you. The, the, the suffering is man-made. You know, this is what we have to fight against. In yes, this we world. do. But it will be a challenge. And that is what I think many people, Israelis, secular, traditional, and I hope Orthodox as well, will be thinking about in the days of awe. How do we manage this moment going forward? Because it's such a critical moment. My feeling is there's an ultimate goodness. There's always challenges in life. But it doesn't take away that there's an ultimate goodness. That's the difference. That's what changed in my life, to understand that this is not random. There is not anarchy. These things that happen to us have a purpose. So there was clearly a purpose in me remembering your name and our fabulous conversation years ago. (laughs) Bracha, I want to thank you so much for being available and being so open in talking about your life experience, the good and the less good, but you've had a tremendous ride and it'll be wonderful to see what the next 40 years bring (laughs) for you. Thank you for talking to State of Tel Aviv today and sharing your wisdom and insights. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.